Hey, welcome to Lakeview Sermon of the Week. We're so grateful to have you here, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. Thank you, Jesus. There's a place where we get where it's so deep that we can't cross. (laughs) Um, That we don't try to cross, we just get lost. And this is the place where God would have us to be. I don't think it's strange that the New Testament sign for Christianity, if you're going to become a Christian, is baptism. Is there something about being placed under and going under that God would have us to get to? When Peter is walking on top of the water in the scriptures, we think that's the miracle. But I think the real miracle is, is when Peter goes down and Jesus picks him back up. That some of us are trying to win and walk on water. And God says, I need you to go down so that I can bring you back up a new creation and a new creature. And when you're so invested in winning, you can think sinking is losing. But I want to submit to you that sinking is the very thing that we need to do. Because outside of sinking, I'll stay in my own strength, I'll operate in my own power, I'll operate in my own intellect, I'll operate into everything else separate from what God has called me to operate in, and that's in His power, in His anointing, and in His strength. So I'm not praying that you walk on water this morning. I'm praying that you'll go down and that Jesus will pick you back up and turn you into the thing that He would have you to be. That we need to be baptized, we need to be submerged. Now, growing up as a kid, I grew up going to a public swimming pool. Everybody, anybody got, anybody got some memories like that, getting dropped off? That was back in the day where your parents dropped you off and they didn't worry about you. <laughs> they went on to work and did their thing and they just left you. And uh, uh, just kidding, Mom. <clears throat> uh, never, she in here? Okay. And, uh, man, I enjoyed it. It was Park Hill Swimming Pool in Malvern, Arkansas. And, uh, man, wow. And so they couldn't keep the candy bars out because it was much too hot. So in the refrigerator, they would keep all the candy bars. And so I still have memories of, like, 100-degree days in the summer eating an ice-cold Milky Way that would like chip your teeth. But you had to kind of thaw it out and gnaw on it. Oh my gosh, now those were some memories for me. Um, but there was one thing I didn't like about the, the, uh, the, the, the pool. And that was there's these, there's these creatures in the pool that wanted to stop everything that was any fun. And they were called lifeguards. it's like and I think it was like a power trip right because if you give some teenagers some authority how many of you know that is not the greatest idea that anyone's ever came up with 
And so when you're a kid and you come off that ladder, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to take off. And you know what the first thing these lifeguards do? They blow a whistle at you and make you stop and make you walk like this to the diving board. And then you're like, is this real? Now, their objective is to keep you safe, but really you feel like all they did was slow you down from getting you to the place where you were actually trying to get to go. And I feel like in the church, we've all become lifeguards and nobody's trying to jump into the pool. Everybody's got a whistle and trying to enforce rules. But what we need is more people diving into the pools and less lifeguards. Now, the lifeguard has a purpose. The lifeguard is there and has a purpose, and we need those kind of people. But not everybody can stand on the outside of the pool and observe why why nobody else is swimming. So I think the Lord would call us to maybe put aside our whistles today put aside some things or maybe our own authority that we feel like has been given to us and that we would reevaluate, um, are we a swimmer or are we not? Are we ankle deep? We knee deep? Are we waist deep? Or are we being carried because it's over our heads? That if you want to be a Christian, you're going to always be in over your head. And isn't it funny, that's the last thing to go under. And so what I'm asking everybody here to do is to take an 18-inch journey from right here to right here. And to submerge that brain underneath. And get it into the spirit of God. And start living out of your heart. Start living outside of your heart. See, the view that the world has of Christianity is that it's limiting. That it's about religion, rules, and regulations. But when I see Jesus' life, I see that it's about abundance and overflow. It's about getting filled up and getting emptied of myself, but yet full of God. It's about getting lost so that he would lead and guide me into things that I could not do on my own. That Christianity is not about being taught. It's about getting caught by the one who's already caught us and catching the one who's caught us. I love what G. Campbell Morgan says. He says that a sailor has no impact on the wind, but a good sailor knows the wind and knows how to set his sails when the wind blows. Understand that there's a season that is upon us and that we're going to have to go deeper if we're going to navigate it. To be a Christian is to be over your head. And to be over your head is to enter into the miraculousness of God. The text that we read from Ezekiel was something he was experiencing and seeing in the spirit. Now, Ezekiel was uh, kind of God's crisis man. He was a prophet. 
that had emerged around the 6th century B.C. And Ezekiel's life, when he's prophesying this, he's coming out of exile. He's not in the temple. He's not in the Jerusalem proper. He's actually in Babylon. He's been carried away into captivity. And he is living with a colony of Jews on the banks of the Chabar River. And as he's on the banks of this river, God begins to show him things concerning the nation of Israel. Now, now Ezekiel was a part of the priestly line, so a lot of what he sees has to do with the temple of God, has to do with the, the rites and the rituals that God's people had as it involves the temple. So he uses a temple paradigm because he was in the priestly uh, lineage. He was uh, actually a priest in a sense. And so he uses these priestly motifs and these priestly models and, and uses these pictures of the temple to bring us uh, pictures of the big thing that God is doing uh, in captivity while the people of God are there. Now, while the people of God are in exile, it creates a cry in them. And what happens with most religions is, is that when Another stronger God or stronger nation defeats that nation, then typically that nation gives up their God and says, well, that didn't work. And they either absorb the God of the ones who've conquered them or they uh, lose their religion altogether or, or whatever. Lots of different things take place. What makes the Jewish religion so unique is that it is in exile to where the Jewish religion actually gets stronger, not weaker. Amen. It's in the place of confinement. It's in the place of loss. It's in the place of going under where they find the promise is actually something bigger than what they even could imagine or they could even think or apprehend with their own minds. That, that exile created a cry in them that said, something's not right, something's not lining up, that something has been lost, and what do we've got to do to regain this thing? And so it was in the place of exile that the promises of God became even more powerful, even more profundant, and even more uh, uh, pervasive within the Jewish life. Because there's something about exile it creates a cry in you to get back home. Isn't it funny? The very place we're trying to leave, as soon as we hit a bad spot, what is the first thing we're trying to do? Oh, can I just get back home? See, you find out you didn't have it as bad as you thought you had it when you was in home. You, you, the dad's rules seemed limiting and they seemed like they were uh, aimed at keeping me from spreading my wings. But then you find out all too often that those rules were actually put in place for your flourishing and so that you could actually hit the potential that God had for your life. But then something else happens in exile. Sometimes it doesn't provoke God to send us home. Sometimes in exile, God is provoked to bring home to us. Because if heaven doesn't come to exile, then how will exile ever be redeemed itself? 
See, some of us have placed our life in this position of comings and goings. If I go here, then then it'll be all right. If I go over here, it'll be all right. If I go over here, and we find ourselves being bounced around like a ping pong ball, bounced around like a pinball, but the reality is, is maybe God would have you to bring heaven to the situation that you're in right now. So Ezekiel doesn't just get in the rivers of the Chabar with this colony of exiled, conquered, defeated Jews and say, oh, we just got to get back home. He begins to get a new vision right in the middle of his exile. He begins to get a new sight set on some greater promise, bigger than what he could even ask, think, or imagine. And it comes to him right in the middle of exile. And guess what? Ezekiel never gets to go back home. But Ezekiel's granted the most beautiful visions possibly in all of the Old Testament for the promises of what God's going to do on the earth. That maybe it's not just about you getting out of pain. Maybe it's about you getting hold of heaven and pulling down the promises of God and putting those promises of God into the earth. That you would give people a greater picture of the glorious things that God wants to do instead of you just getting out of your little painful situation. That maybe God ain't worried about you getting back home. Maybe he's worried about you bringing home to exile. Maybe he's about you bringing presents right to the place where it would be least expected. Right before the exile into Babylon, the Old Testament community had lost sight of what God was doing. And they assumed that because they had the temple built that they had Solomon's temple there that God had made a covenant that he would never pick up and go and so instead of using that covenant as a something that would strengthen their faith and would bring them into new levels of godliness and bring them into a prayerful uh, attitude and a humble attitude they took for granted of the fact that God didn't have to be there And they started looking at his presence as something that was common. That his presence becomes something that like, yeah, he's here. Oh, he's not going to leave. We built this building for him. Why would he go? We got a building. I stacked bricks over there. That ain't going nowhere. That's staying right there. So they begin to see the sign of a building as a covenant more than the presence of God and his presence as the sign of the covenant. How many know you can be in a building and not feel the presence? And so they said, we ain't going nowhere. The temple's here. God's done said he's never leaving. This is where we're at. And they begin to treat it as common. So Ezekiel begins to be picked up, him and uh, some other Jews in that time in 597 B.C. Jeremiah was the first one to experience the first captivity, which is in 605. And then Ezekiel was second in 597. And then finally in 586, the whole temple is destroyed. There's not one stone standing on another. It's just completely demolished. 
So Ezekiel, before the temple had been destroyed, sees a vision in chapter 10. And in this vision that he sees in chapter 10, he sees the Spirit of God being lifted up, taken, and moved somewhere else. That he sees the very presence of God lifted from the place they thought it could never be lifted from. And Ezekiel's trying to process these moments and process what in the world God is doing. And I want to tell you something. Just because God picks up from a place probably means that he's going somewhere else and finding another place to land. And that just because he's left this situation doesn't mean he's left the earth altogether. And if he is showing up, if his presence isn't honored, if it isn't uh, embraced, if it isn't, uh, if it isn't uh, just wholesale, God, we just want you, he will lift that presence up and he'll put it into a place where some people are who will honor, steward, and respect and, and will put that presence above all, all other else. That's, that's what he'll do. He'll pick it up. And what Ezekiel was seeing was that God was picking up his presence and he was taking his presence into another place. But all the people could see was that the presence was leaving the temple. See, they had made the temple the issue, the, uh, how do I say it? They had made the temple everything and had forgot that God was bigger than those man-made structures and those things that they were calling the temple. That those structures were in place to create an environment of encounter with the one true God. That it was a place of exchange for sin, for grace and mercy and, and, and blessing and different things. And they had forgotten that it was a place to meet him and instead it had become about the place more than it had become the presence. Because here's the thing, when you quit hungering for the presence, you won't know when it's left. You'll be in the building, but not in the building. You'll be in the room, but not in him. So Ezekiel sees this thing happen in chapter 10. And he's telling the covenant community that the presence of God has left the temple. But that doesn't mean that he's not doing a new thing. <laughs> that we don't have to weep over God leaving the temple is that God's going somewhere else to do something new. That in this vision, he's presence of God's being carried off by a chariot. And it's really odd because Ezekiel sees some weird things. It's so weird that people think that Ezekiel was seeing aliens. Watch the History Channel. It's, it's, it's in there. Because he see things like a will within a will. What in the world's going on? A will within a will. He said Ezekiel is seeing God operate in time and space and in history. That there is a will that's turning or a clock that's ticking 
or better yet, a countdown that is going down to a climactic event. (laughs) See, we see time as cyclical, but actually it's counting down to something very glorious and great. So this will within a will, well, what's the will attached to? Chariot. What's riding in the chariot? And who's driving the chariot? Jesus. <laughs> so Ezekiel is seeing all these things and these inner workings, and it's leading him to know, wait a second, Jesus hasn't got off the chariot of human history. He's actually driving it to the place that he would have it to be. So Ezekiel is now encouraged by what he sees, that it's not just the presence of God leaving, but it's God doing something new in the earth. So then this whole set of new visions happen in Ezekiel 40 to verse 40, or to chapter 48. And it begins to unfold God's glorious future redemption of God's people. And enjoying, where God is enjoying himself living and ruling and reigning amongst his people. That the temple is reinstated, that the instruments of worship are reinstated, and that it's bigger and better than it ever was. That if you've lost something, I want to assure you that if you will go into God, he'll give you back better than what you even lost. So don't cry about the presence lifting up and maybe the temple seems void. God is up to something new if you'll get on board and follow him where he is headed in the earth. So there's something about God, though. He always starts small. When he wants to start a nation, he finds this old codger named Abraham who can't have any kids. Now, if I'm going to start a nation, probably not where I'm going to start. I'd find some young strapping buck and let's go. But God don't operate like that. God don't operate according to the flesh and according to human intellect. God operates in a different kind of principle. It's just what he does. Because if he gets people that are strong in the flesh, guess what they're going to trust? They're going to trust in the flesh. They're going to trust in their own arms and their own strength, just like Emily preached, in their own legs and in their own chariots and in their own horses. But God wants to find a people that are so poor, that are so pitiful, that are so blind, wretched, miserable, and naked that he is their only covering and their only way out. So for God to get his promises in the earth, he's got to find a man in exile that's washing his clothes on the banks of a river that ain't even home to him. God had to isolate a man. So God always starts small. So I got to thinking about this. And have you ever thought where things start? When I was a kid and we found a creek or a stream... We would walk that thing out until we, found, until we could no longer walk it and we would find where it came from or what it ran into or where it was coming out of. Am I just the only weird one that ever did that? Oh, there's a couple more. A couple weirdos with me. And so I would get in that thing 
And we would just walk, me and my friends, we would walk and walk and walk until we found out where it came from. And every time we found the source of one that was fed by a spring, it would always come from the least impressive place that you could possibly think. Like we're thinking we're going to come into a waterfall or something, right? We're thinking we're going to come into this grand, beautiful place. And more times than not, it would just be this swampy, monkey area that was down to a trickle. I thought, man, we were better going off back the other way, going with it. So I want to show you guys, this is where the mighty Mississippi starts. I think we've got a, a picture of it here. Now that's the end. Thank you for that. <laughs> Underwhelming. Thank you. This is where it starts. This is a lake in Minnesota, and this is where the Mississippi River starts. And it's basically a lake that just comes to this little trickle, and that's the start of the Mississippi River. It flows over 2,500 miles, and here's what happens when it pours into the Gulf of Mexico. It's so strong that it actually pushes the ocean back, and that is a legit picture of where the Mississippi River meets the ocean. That if God's doing something very small in your life, you need to rejoice. Because what God is doing that looks very small now is going to have the force to push back the ocean and all that is salty that's trying to come and get you. And so this is a legitimate picture. This is how the Mississippi ends. That maybe we could be more consumed with how God's going to finish a thing than how he's going to start it. And how many times have we backed out on God starting a thing because we didn't see the results that we really wanted to see. So this is the river Ezekiel sees, this mighty river. And this mighty river is flowing from the temple. Not only is it flowing from a temple, in chapter 40, Ezekiel sees this like heavenly man. So this water is flowing from the holiest place out of the temple and is gaining momentum as it's flowing into Jerusalem. And it doesn't just stay in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that the river flows all the way into Jerusalem. The Dead Sea. Did you know that Jerusalem is the only major city really to be founded in a place where there's no mighty river or source of great water? That most places was the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia. You have the Tigris and Euphrates. That you have the Nile River where Egypt was. But God would have his people begin to start a settlement in a place where there's no mighty river. Why? 
Because he wants to be the only source that you lean on, that he wants to be the only thing in which you would put your trust, that you'd put your strength, that you would put all your assets and your talents and everything into him. That this is what God would do when he tells us to start a place in Jerusalem. Now this river flows like a small trickle. And it's like Ezekiel's being shown. You know the place you're yearning about? The place that everybody wants to go back to? That place is just a small trickle. See, some of us are yearning to go back to places and we misinterpret what God was wanting to do. That I know that looked real impressive back then, but you know what it really was? It was a small trickle compared to what God actually wanted to do. So if God can keep us going backwards into something old and keep us going backwards, the flow is not increasing. The flow is actually decreasing. And we just live in the small trickle. That from the holiest place of all was just a small trickle. So the counterproductive thing seems to be that if I'm in the temple, to turn around and to leave the temple. (laughs) But not if God's doing a new thing. Because I've got to go where God is flowing, not where the structures and the man-made things that are in my mind tell me I ought to be. I have to get into the place, even if the holiest place is a trickle and it's going that way, I've got to follow that trickle out to seed to the things that God is leading me towards and taking me to. So it starts as a small trickle that soaks into the ground that would dissipate, evaporate, and disappear. But as Ezekiel launches out, we find that God's doing something much more glorious. That God always starts small. That it's like a mustard seed being buried into the ground. That it's like leaven just a little bit getting into a lump of dough. Seems hidden and insignificant. It looks like a 30-year-old Jewish carpenter termed homeless itinerant preacher. But now in every continent, people are calling on the name of the Lord. It doesn't look impressive. Maybe not Antarctica. I'm not sure. Um, Well, maybe penguins. Maybe some penguins. See, this vision that Ezekiel saw was actually a winter stream. And the call. And sometimes these start as a trickle. Because there's something about winter, a winter stream, is there's barely enough that's not frozen that's trickling out. So the idea here is this seasonal stream that is trickling, but the season is changing that's going to start to melt the ice. That the winter season that was just bringing a trickle 
was beginning to shift. And as those snow-capped mountains were going to begin to thaw out, water was going to run from the mountains into the lowest place it could, which is a valley. And in that valley was going to be created a mighty river. That the winter season won't last forever. But how you navigate your winter season will determine the depth of your river. That the direction that it's flowing is east because water always flows to the lowest point. It always flows to the lowest point. So the lowest point in the east would be the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is the lowest point on earth. It's the 1,400 feet below sea level. So if you could picture like the sea and then picture 1,400 feet if you were able to look at it in that way, that would be where the Dead Sea is. That would be how low that place is. It's like this big pit. And when the water flows into this place, the reason why the Dead Sea's dead is it has no outlet to flush it out. It always is receiving and is never able to give out. And so this Dead Sea is made up of about 35% salt. It's full of minerals and full of stuff. It's so dense that you float. In other words, in the Dead Sea, you can't get under. You keep coming to the top. In the dead place, that is, the Dead Sea. There's no fish there. It only takes in, never flows out. And anything that is always taking and never giving will always be dead. But, but here's what happens. Is the water that starts from a trickle from the holiest place in the temple flows into this place called the Dead Sea. And as soon as this touches the Dead Sea, the waters are healed. And what goes from being an oddity where people take pictures floating in it becomes a place where all the fishermen descend because they've got to catch all the different fish that are in this place. That God changes the identity of a place called dead and turns it into a place that's called living or resurrection or brought back to life. All this from a mere trickle from the sanctuary. Fishermen lining the banks of the Dead Sea. Can you imagine that? Do you imagine that? People fishing where nothing has ever lived. <laughs> it doesn't just heal the water. It foregoes the process and resurrects fish. That it doesn't bring eggs. It brings full-grown fish. <laughs> that if you'll get in the river in the presence of God, you can bypass some of that process. And you can get all the way healed, but it just depends upon how deep do you really want to go in this thing. It really depends on how deep you really want 
to go. The Dead Sea gets healed from a trickle from the sanctuary. Now, what is the source? Who is the water flowing from the temple? The healing water that flows from the temple. It comes from a man by the name of Jesus. In John 7, what Ilm preached last week, talking about digging wells, that Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast, the greatest day, and he stands up and shouts, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Let the one who believes in me drink, just as the scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. Now he said, this is about the spirit whom those whom believed in him were going to receive. For the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That Jesus is saying, if if you're not self-sufficient, I need you to go deeper and to change your paradigms and be open to the spirit of God and his infilling so that you can leave from being filled to being filled to overflowing. That God has so much more for us, but it means losing control. And you know what I found? Control is just a facade anyway. We ain't no more in control of anything than... You know, let a bad season hit you and see how, see how in control you actually are. So the water starts at the feet. Some of us are about feet deep maybe. And you're just deep enough to where it kind of changes the way you walk. It's kind of like my kids, like, if they see a body of water or a mud hole or anything, they're getting as close as they can to it until they wear me down enough that I give them permission to go into their feet and roll their pants up. But if I give them that much permission, do you know how much more they're going to? It's like they have this thing in them that they have to get uh, completely covered or completely caked. But you know what's different about adults? We went swimming the other day at at a lake and we were content to stay in our feet. I mean, we looked like grandpa and grandma. A big old straw hat on and had these old ugly sandals. And man, we looked like tourists from way back. But my girls are going to the buoys, man. They're just like, they're just getting as far as they can. That we've got to get past our feet. It's not enough for to not go to the places we used to go. It's not enough to just change the way we walk a little bit. But then Ezekiel went a little further down, and he got to his knees. Got to his pants rolled up. But Jesus was not content for him to stay there. 
Some of us, the most spiritual place we feel like we've gotten is that we pray. And that's the start. That's not the end goal. That if we can get just deep enough to our knees and pray about our problems, then that must be the place that God would have me to be. But I want to tell you there's a further place. There's a, there's a deeper place. Now Ezekiel gets down into his waist. Now we're getting somewhere. That's really the first place to where if you're ever in water, you go. (gasps) (laughs) That some of us need to get our private areas underneath the waters of what God wants to do. See, some of you have been thinking you're in over your heads. You just play a good spiritual game. You've yet to put the most private places underneath the water of God. You're really knee deep. You think you're deep because you know how to shout and do the game. But until this area right here gets underneath the water of God, you've got nowhere in him. I don't care how good you preach. I don't care how great your ministry is. You better get the private places up under the water of God. that okay? Good, I was giving it to you anyway. (laughs) The place of reproduction, the place of winning others to the Lord. But here's the problem with waist deep. You're still in control. You can be refreshed and blessed, but you're still in control. But Ezekiel gets out and he walks a little further down. And then when he gets back in, he can't even cross anymore. It's that he's gotten in over his head. That this river that started as a trickle has now got to a place to where it's so deep, it's over his head. And at that point, there's no more struggle or swim or comes a point where you just let it go. You just let it go. And you let that stream take you right into the places that used to be dead, but everywhere this stream flows, there's life. And there's trees on each side producing fruit. That the main goal for trees are mainly fruit, but these trees are so supernatural at this place that even their leaves provide healing. Maybe that's why Jesus cursed the fig tree. Because that tree had received so much revelation and so much nutrients and so much encounter that it should have been able to bypass seasons and produce whenever it wanted. That God is above seasons. So there's something that Ezekiel says in this that, that just caught me off guard. 
Ezekiel asked, have you seen this? Is he wanted to know if people had seen this. And that's my question to you. Have you seen this? Have you seen this? And would you walk a little further and get in over your head and let the Spirit of God lead and guide your life beyond the place that you are comfortable, beyond the place that you feel safe, and into the place to where he really has full control to the place that he's really the one in charge. Yeah. Yeah. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we have a new wave coming. So God, I want to prepare ourselves for it. That we would be the conduits of your Holy Spirit. That we wouldn't just be lifeguards telling people they're going too deep. (laughs) But God, we would be participants. God, that we wouldn't be observers, but we would be partakers. That we would drink deep of this water that you offer. That we would drink deep of you, God. And that you would be our foremost consideration. (laughs) And that your presence would be our foremost consideration. And ministering unto you would be most important in our lives. That Ezekiel saw a temple, but this temple that Ezekiel saw was 694 acres. And the temple mount is only about 36. That John saw a temple and it was 1,400 miles. (laughs) That God, we are the temple. (laughs) And that we're ever increasing. (sighs) But let us not get blinded by the world and think we got to win because we've already won. God, let us go deeper. Let us go deeper in you. Would you stand to your feet in this place? Would you lift your hands? Would you lift your hands? How deep are you really? If you're here and you say, I want to go deeper, I want to go deeper, I want you to come down to these altars. Come down to these altars. Come down to the altars. You say, I want to get deeper. You want to get over your head. 
you want to get over your head, you're going to have to go under. I'd hate to be on judgment day and have wet feet. you can go but we're going to just open these altars and we're just going to see where God takes us see where this thing goes and we're just going to love and serve him thanks for tuning in our hope is that these messages will help you on your journey of discovering who Christ is and who you are in him you can learn more about our ministry at lvahs.org or follow us on instagram at lakeview.hs